So many Christians, for example, when confronted with the LGBTQ issue, tend to think that we're debating behavior, what sexual behavior is appropriate or isn't appropriate. In actual fact, as far as the LGBTQ movement is concerned, we're debating identity. And knowing how these movements have emerged, knowing the kind of what I call cultural pathologies that lie behind them, enable us I said, not to be surprised. We should be horrified, but not surprised by these things. And enable us to understand how to train our own people to think about these things and how to respond to those individuals we meet. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Carl Truman. Carl currently serves as Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College, and previously served as the William E. Simon Fellow in Religion and Public Life at Princeton University. He's also the author of numerous books, including The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and The Road to Sexual Revolution from Crossway. Today, Carl and I discuss our culture's current obsession with identity and changing attitudes about gender and sexuality. He offers a crash course on key historical figures and ideas that have shaped us in profound, yet often unnoticed ways. He offers advice when it comes to navigating an increasingly hostile culture in the coming years. And he highlights what conservative Christians often misunderstand about the LGBTQ cause. Before we get started, we also want to encourage you to tune in tomorrow, November 18th, for a special two-hour audio preview of Carl's new book, available exclusively on the Crossway Podcast. Let's get started. Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today. Matt, it's a real pleasure to be here. So I'd venture to guess that many, if not most, Christians today might look back at the last decade or so in America in particular, but, but in the West more generally, with a sense of surprise and maybe disorientation about our culture's views on a whole host of things, but maybe in particular sexuality and gender and how those views have changed. Uh, and it was only in 2015 that the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage in the U.S. for the whole country. And in those few years since, we've just seen the rates of acceptance of homosexuality and gay marriage and now transgenderism increasingly uh, grow uh, but as you point out, these changes didn't come out of nowhere. So I guess if you had to summarize at a pretty high level, why are so many of us surprised by how our society has changed? And what were we not seeing? Well, I think it's a natural human response to the phenomena we see around us, social, cultural, etc., to, to treat them really in isolation. Uh, and to think of them as, as springing out of nowhere. And that's not surprising, particularly when you have something as, as dramatic as, as transgenderism, for example. Uh, suddenly that is not simply being tolerated, but it's becoming a kind of cultural, political orthodoxy. I think that's shocking because so many of us uh, don't think in terms of long-term underlying causes. I think what we're seeing today is really the the latest iteration or the logical or the culturally logical outworking of trends and ideas that have been in place for for hundreds of years. And it's important, 
I think, on two fronts that we recognise that. One, so that we are less shocked and disoriented by what's happening. And two, so that we actually know the precise significance of what's happening. Uh, so many Christians, for example, when confronted with uh, the gay, the LGBTQ issue, tend to think that we're debating behavior, you know, what sexual behavior is appropriate or isn't appropriate. In actual fact, uh, as far as the LGBTQ movement is concerned, we're debating identity. Mm. And knowing how these movements have emerged, knowing the kind of what I call cultural pathologies that lie behind them, enable us, I said, not to be surprised. We should be horrified, but not surprised by these things. And two, enable us to understand how, uh, A, to train our own people to think about these things, and B, how to respond to those individuals we meet who are perhaps caught up mm. and positively disposed towards these movements. Yeah, I want to get into sort of how we can then respond in light of a better understanding of what's been happening. But I wonder just briefly, do you think that because we have largely not understood the historical uh, reasons for these things, is that harmed our response as, let's just say, broadly conservative Christians? Yes. Now, of course, it's hard to generalize because when you answer a question like that, you're talking in rather comprehensive terms, and, and some Christians and some churches have done better than others. Uh, some have acted wrongly, but out of the best motives. So I, I want to preface what I'm going to say by saying uh, my answer is going to be somewhat simplistic and, and generalized. But if you don't know the precise nature of the problem that you're faced with, it's very difficult to respond to it appropriately. And uh, I would also say that if you don't make certain distinctions within that problem, it's difficult to respond to appropriately. And one of the things that underlies my concern about Christian responses to LGBTQ issues is it's important to make a, a distinction between these things as cultural political movements and as they might manifest themselves in the life or experience of any particular individual. Uh, one needs to deal with the individual in a very, very pastoral way, uh, uh, separating them conceptually, if you like, from the larger political movement. But one mustn't allow one's sentimental uh, sympathy for somebody struggling with these things necessarily to blunt one's critique of the political and cultural movement as a whole. So, yeah, I do think a good grasp of how and why the culture thinks and acts the way it does is very important as a foundation for making those kind of decisions and those kinds of distinctions. Mm. Yeah, you know, uh, maybe jumping in specifically here, you, you know the origins of your uh, decision to really dig into this topic uh, and even write a book about it, stemmed from a desire to answer a specific question that you had. I wonder if you can share what that question was and and how you kind of figured out how to answer that. Well, again, a little bit of background. My, I'm, my training really is as a historian of ideas. I'm a, I was a Reformation, 16th, 17th century guy, really. But my interest in those centuries was always in the ideas. Why are these people thinking in this particular way at this particular point in time? What has gone on in the past that has made this kind of discourse, this kind of language, these sort of concepts make sense? So... Partly in the background of the book is just that general curiosity that drives me as a historian. I could have picked 
on any sentence, if you like, and thought, well, why does this make sense? The specific sentence to which you're referring is is the rather, well, for my grandfather and his generation, the rather bizarre one, uh, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Had I said that to my grandfather, and I allude to my grandfather in my book, he's a great, he's the late great invisible man in many of mm. my lectures. I'm always using him as a contrast. If I'd said that sentence to my grandfather, I think he'd have burst out laughing because it would have sounded utterly incoherent to him. He died just 25, 26 years ago. Why is it that 26 years after his death, that sentence isn't just regarded as being coherent, but actually, if you consider that sentence to be at all incoherent, then you are liable to accusations of ignorance, a phobia of some kind, etc., etc. So the interest that was driving me, what needs to take place within society, within the way not so much we consciously think, but the way we intuit the world around us? Why is it that that sentence now makes intuitive sense to the ordinary man or woman in the street in a way that maybe even 15 years ago it would have seemed utterly bizarre to them? What are the social, cultural forces shaping the way we... We imagine, instinctively imagine the world to be and to make sense. So that was what was was driving the the book as a whole. Ironically, of course, I only get to transgenderism right at the very end. It's a mm. long story to get there. It only comes in, I think, in the penultimate chapter. But that was the, the curiosity question that motivated uh, the narrative within the book. Well, and I'm struck that uh, maybe looking at both ends of the spectrum, um, a conservative Christian might answer your question, you know, why would my grandfather be so surprised and so confused by that statement, with saying, well, that's just because our culture has forsaken the Bible, we have forsaken Christian norms and biblical norms, and on the other side of the spectrum, you know, the, the, the left, the liberal, um, secular left might say, well, um, it's because he was just a really close-minded fundamentalist Christian who didn't, who, who, who was just a bigot, you know? And so yeah, I guess yeah. why would you say both of those responses or answers to the question would kind of miss the mark? What are they, what are they both missing? Well, I, I could answer personally one and say, actually, my grandfather, as far as I know, was not a Christian. So that certainly wasn't the reason why I thought like that. Uh, I think on the first question, yeah, okay, you know, people think like that because they're sinful, because they've abandoned the word of God. I don't question that, but it doesn't explain very much to me. Cultures have abandoned the word of God throughout the centuries. And the specific cultural forms that abandonment takes have been different over time. You know, in Jeroboam's time, it involves setting up golden calves at Bethel and Dan. And you can go back and understand why he does that. Why does he do that specific thing? Well, there are geopolitical and historical reasons why the abandonment of the word of God looks that way at that time. So when it comes to the modern era, the question for me is, okay, yeah, uh, let, let's say that human sin is the explanation. Unfortunately, an explanation that explains everything in general explains nothing in particular. Uh, I think I use in the book, I use the example of you know, the Twin Towers fell down on 9-11 because of gravity. That's technically correct, but doesn't really tell me anything about 9-11 doesn't mm. tell me anything useful about what actually happened that day or why it happened. So to Christians, I would say, okay, you might say, why is Truman wasting his time on this? The reason I want to get into, into this particular issue in this way is that I'm fascinated with why is it 
sex and sexuality that has come to occupy this central position, if you like, in the human rebellion against God? Why is it not greed for money? Why is it not putting up golden calves in New York and bowing down and worshipping? Why this particular form of rebellion? Uh, to those on the left, I'd want to say, in some ways, a sort of a, a similar thing. Yeah, but people, if you want to say people are bigoted or people have irrational views, uh, that's, that's the case throughout history. People, some people have believed in crazy stuff. Why do they believe in this particular crazy stuff at this particular point in time? So I, I want to sort of say, you know, what we have to do is, is get down and look at the story. And incidentally, one of the reasons I tell the story the way I do in the book, being very careful to tell the story rather than to jump to this, uh, these are all godless heathen, is that I, I hope that those who don't agree with my theologi personal theological convictions can yet read the book and say, yeah, it, it makes sense. Truman doesn't like the end result, and I do. But the story, we can agree on the dynamics of the story here. Mm. Yeah, so, so then starting to unpack that, you're arguing that the only way to really grasp, let alone respond to what's been happening in our culture today, and, and perhaps most acutely felt with related to sexuality and transgenderism uh, now, is to explore Western culture's revolution of the self. That's the phrase that you use. Yeah. So I wonder um, if you can unpack that phrase. What do you mean by the self, and why was it a revolution? Yeah, well, the self is, it's a word that might sound a, a little bit, sounds like a pun, self-regarding. It's one of those sort of academic -y words mm. that people like to throw around to show that they're sophisticated and in with the jargon. And it and always feels a little bit vague, and you're just like, yeah. you kind of have a sense, but you don't really know what it means. Yeah. And what I mean by the self is that which makes us tick. How do we think of our selves. Now, there's a sense, there's a trivial sense in which, you know, I know I'm not Matt Tully. I know myself is not Matt Tully. You go back through history and, you know, Alexander the Great presumably knew he wasn't Croesus. The Oracle at Delphi knew she wasn't Homer. There are, you know, human beings have always had that intuitive sense of what we might call individuality. Mm. What I mean by the self is how we understand ourselves as individuals to relate to the world and to relate to life as a whole. What is it that makes us happy? What is it that we see life as being about? What is the purpose of our existence? Does it have a transcendent aspect? Is it purely to do with this world? Uh, what is my purpose here? What are my obligations and duties here? How do I think of myself within the world at large? So that's what I'm trying to get at. And when it comes to the sexual revolution, again, I think a lot of us tend to think of the sexual revolution as an expanding of sexual behavior. You know, it wasn't legitimate to have a baby outside of marriage, to live with somebody before marriage, to, to sleep around. It wasn't considered legitimate to do that, say, pre-1900. Even though it all went on, there was an amount of social shame involved in that. And now we've just broadened the boundaries and, and all that kind of behavior is okay. And most significantly, of course, homosexuality was, you know, in Britain, I don't know about America, but in Britain, you know, it was illegal until the late 60s. You could go to pres prison for being a, a gay person, practicing uh, a practicing homosexual. Uh, we've we got rid of those laws. We've expanded that. And the tendency in Christian circles is to think the sexual revolution is all about just expanding the boundaries. I don't think it is. I think the sexual revolution actually rests upon a deeper transformation 
of what it means to be a self, of how we think of ourselves in relation to others and the world, what makes us tick, what gives me my identity. So the book is an attempt to address the sexual revolution against that broader backcloth of fundamental changes in how human beings think of themselves, think of the good life, think of morality and happiness, those sort of issues. Mm. Yeah, and you draw on a number of uh, historical thinkers, philosophers, ethicists, and trying to unpack uh, this change in how we've come to view ourselves. But I think one of the most important uh, philosophers, a Canadian philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor that you draw on, uh, he talks of expressive individualism. And that kind of is, is in the subtitle of your book, and that, that's um, the dominant lens, I think, through which you explore this. So that, that's the result of the revolution. What did, what did he mean by expressive individualism? Expressive individualism, sorry, getting tongue-tied there, expressive individualism is the idea that we are at our most authentic or our most genuine when we give outward social, cultural, personal expression to that which we feel inwardly. So the real me, if you like, is what lives inside. And to the extent that I'm able to express that outwardly, to that extent, I realize myself as a genuine person, a genuine self. It's a little more complicated that, than that, as, I, as Taylor knows, and as, as I actually use him to try to argue this in the book, in that, take a rather tasteless example, you know, the serial killer. The serial killer might want to realize his or her identity by going around killing people, and society won't tolerate that. Even our expressive individual society, thankfully, doesn't tolerate that. So there's a certain dialogue that goes on. But the interesting thing is, even though our identities are, are dialogical in an expressive individual society, it's, it's a dialogue between who I think I am inwardly and what society wants me to be, the way I imagine myself really is a monologue. Mm. I can be whomever I want to be. So that's what expressive individualism is trying to, to catch. And it connects to the sexual revolution, of course, because what the sexual revolution has done is said that inside, at your most fundamental level, you are a sexual being. Your sexual desires determine and define who you are. And the sexual revolution simply says, therefore, we should be able to express those publicly, socially, and culturally. And to the extent we're prevented from doing that, to that extent we are prevented from being authentic. Does that explain even why it seems like often with the sexual revolution in uh, both homosexuality and transgenderism, there's this prioritization of the internal of my feelings inside my, my mind over and against even the physical bodies that we have? You know, they're almost set in contrast oftentimes, and it's, it's always the, the internal feelings that win. Does that connect yes. to this? I think so. Uh, and more obviously, I think, in the transgender uh, movement than, than in the, uh, the gay and lesbian community, if I can make that distinction. But transgenderism very clearly prioritizes inward conviction over bodily reality. In fact, the bodily reality must give way to the internal psychological conviction. Uh, Robbie George at Princeton, uh, professor of, of law at Princeton, uh, refers to this as a kind of Gnosticism, a denying of the authority of the physical, particularly the body. Uh, so I would, I would agree, yes, mm. uh, specifically and, and most obviously with transgenderism. So what then was before expressive individualism? If, if this is the latest 
result of this uh, revolution of the self that that has these antecedents going back hundreds of years, how, how would you summarize how we used to view ourselves um, before this era? Well, I think if you go back, say, to the medieval period, you have a very fixed, certainly in the West, in Western Europe, you have a very fixed hierarchical society. And, you know, almost certainly my ancestors were medieval peasants. You know, my surname seems to indicate that was probably the case. <laughs> so, but if you could imagine I'm, I'm born in 1350, let's say, who am I? Well, I'm the son of a particular set of parents. Uh, I'm born in a particular area. I'm destined from birth to be, guess what, a peasant farmer. Uh, my identity is very much given to me. There's no point in me wanting to become a knight in shining armour, or wanting to be a prince or a king. It's never going to happen. My identity there is, is something that we might say, I have to conform myself to. So growing up an education for me in that context would be learning the expectations of the established, authoritative, fixed, static social structures and learning how to conform myself to them. Move to the present day. Think about philosophy of education, child-centered education. The philosophy there is, is not to teach the child to conform to established structures and established expectations. In many ways, the philosophy is to get those things out of the way, to allow the child to do his or her own thing. Yuval Levine, the, the great thinker at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, I think he's still there, uh, has this great comment about, in, in past times, institutions were places of formation. You, know, you went to school to learn how to conform yourself to the behavior, the knowledge, etc., required to be an adult member of society. He says, today institutions have changed from places of formation to places of performance. Now, that's a very interesting shift and, again, reflects uh, that kind of move away from your identity is given to you to your identity is one you can, you can construct for yourself. Mm. And maybe I should say at this point, I'm not saying expressive individualism is a bad thing. I'm more than happy to have grown up at a time where, though my parents didn't go to college, I got into a good college, uh, that I've been able to do things that would not have been possible for me in the Middle Ages. So I'm not saying expressive individualism is a bad thing. I am saying, though, that it is the dominant type of way we all Christians, non-Christians, straight, gay, etc., etc. It's the way we all actually think about ourselves today. So there are lots of historical figures um, that are important to this story uh, that help to explain why we are at the point that we're at today as a culture. Uh, and I just want to spend a little time, though, on four of them, four particular key figures, Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Sigmund Freud. And I'm sure those names are familiar to virtually all of our listeners. We've all heard those names before, but I wonder if you could briefly introduce each of them and explain why they're important to this story. So I guess if we start chronologically, let's start with Charles Darwin. Darwin is interesting to me for two reasons. Uh, one, what he achieves is the relativization of human nature, that he, he he effectively puts into place the idea that human beings are just an exalted form of, of ape, if you like. Uh, the second thing important about Darwin is that he does it with, he does it in a scientific idiom. Uh, 
And one of the striking things of the culture of the last 200 years is how science has come to be a very persuasive form of rhetoric in the cultural and political sphere. We're recording this interview at the, in the height of the, the COVID moment. And one of the things that has interested me is, is that language. I've said to my wife, if I hear another sentence beginning with the phrase, the experts say, I'm going to you know, throw myself off a bridge <laughs> in an appropriately socially distanced manner, of course. But um, it's very interesting how COVID has really revealed how much authority scientists have, particularly the scientists who are telling the narrative perhaps that the politicians want to hear. It's, it's what Michael Hanby, the Roman Catholic philosopher, calls a biotechnocracy, that there's this sort of technical power given to scientists culturally. And so Darwin is very influential, not because most of us have read his theories and then traced out how they've been developed and elaborated, uh, let alone have any real understanding of how the genetics involved work. Darwin is powerful because and, and is able to relativize human nature because he speaks in a powerful rhetorical idiom, the mm. idiom of science, and has been picked up by scientists, reinforced by that. And secondly, tells a story that for all of its very complicated underpinnings in genetics is pretty simple to grasp. You and I look a bit like apes. There must be a connection. It's plausible. So Darwin, very, very important at, uh, at getting rid of the idea or providing the foundations for getting rid of the idea of human exceptionalism and the idea that human beings are answerable to a higher transcendent kind of authority in a way that the animals are not. Mm -hmm. So then how about Karl Marx? He, he is um, uh, just a few decades after Darwin. Uh, what, how does he fit into this story? Marx, of course, most famous as a, a revolu socialist revolutionary figure and also an economist. I'm not so interested in, in the, the economics Marx in this book. I'm interested in the Marx who, really the early Marx. Marx writes quite a lot of interesting stuff in the 1840s, particularly a set of manuscripts, the economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844, where he deals with human nature. He's very much uh, following in the footsteps of the German philosopher Hegel at that point, but he, he sort of flips Hegel and makes Hegel a materialist or not an idea. So it doesn't make Hegel that, but he says you can use Hegel, but we've got we to gotta see these things materially rather than ideally. Uh, what Marx does that's significant for the narrative of this story, I think, is this. Uh, he, he argues that morality is essentially a function of the ruling class attempting to normalize forms of social behavior in the lower classes that are necessary for the ruling class to maintain its position of authority. Obvious example might be lifelong monogamous marriage. Marx would say, you know, that moral imperative, it doesn't come from any divine decree. What that comes from is the need for the middle-class capitalist, to have a stable workforce in the factory. And sexual anarchy would undermine that. So what is done is, is, is the, the economic need for monogamous lifelong marriage is sort of mystified and turned into a, a theological or moral imperative. Marx is also important because he sees all human relations as, as fundamentally 
connected to economic relations. He sees economics as political and therefore he sees all human relations as political. And that's an important step in, in seeing why sex becomes political. When you think about it, it's sort of odd to think that the most private act between two human beings is one of the most pressing public issues of politics of our day. How do we get there? Well, Marx is part of that story because Marx essentially says uh, there is no such thing as the pre-political or the private. Everything is political. Everything has to be put on the table in terms of the social revolution. So that's where Marx is significant. Mm. And how about Nietzsche? He, I think many of us would mostly be familiar with uh, his contention that uh, God is dead and, and that's kind of maybe the extent of our understanding of what he was all about. Yeah, Nietzsche, very important. One of my favorite philosophers, uh, mainly because he's one of the few philosophers who actually writes in an interesting way. <laughs> he's kind of fun to read. I, I love teaching him in the classes I, I do at Grove. Uh, yeah, uh, he's famous for the statement, God is dead. But of course, what Nietzsche does is draw out the implications of that in his work, The Gay Science, which in case you're not familiar with it, is nothing to do with the modern meaning of gay. It could be easily translated uh, uh, the joyful science, uh, uh, the happy science. In, in the famous passages on the death of God in that, what Nietzsche is essentially doing is saying, okay, the Enlightenment got rid of God. The problem is that Enlightenment philosophers like Immanuel Kant or David Hume, having got rid of God or, or made him little more than a presupposition of the world, haven't, haven't really seen the implications of that. And what Nietzsche says is, if God is dead, if there is no God, everything's up for grabs. Everything's up for grabs. There's no transcendence. Uh, you cannot appeal to any kind of law out there to which you must conform yourself. You have to rise to the challenge, if you kill God, of being God yourself. And he also applies that to, to the individual. Some people say Nietzsche is a nihilist. I don't think Nietzsche is a nihilist. Nietzsche certainly believes that life is ultimately meaningless, but he doesn't think that life is therefore not worth living. You know, life can be worthwhile even if ultimately it's meaningless because live for the moment. Make yourself your greatest piece of art. He is, if you like, the philosopher par excellence of anarchic express, expressive individualism. One section I wish I'd included in the book uh, because I've been reading on this since, that the figure that's missing from the book is Oscar Wilde. Mm. Because most people, when they hear of Nietzsche, they think, oh, Superman, Nazis, racial superiority. No, Nietzsche's thinking about the artist as a revolutionary creative figure. And Oscar Wilde, in, in his life, uh, is in some ways the classic Nietzschean man. So if, if you want to see what Nietzsche is getting at in terms of what a human being should look at, check out our Oscar Wilde. Here you have a man who breaks with convention and delights in being a, effectively a self-creator. Mm. So then, and last but not least, there's Sigmund Freud. And ab about him, you write, I, th I think up to this point, we can start to see the pieces of this expressive individualism kind of coming together. But Freud's important, and about him, you write, that more than any other figure, Freud made possible, plausible, the idea that humans from infancy onward are at core sexual beings. Yeah. What yeah. do you mean by that? Well, Freud is, he's inter uh, first thing to say about Freud is many of his psychoanalytic theories have now been debunked. When I chat to the 
kids at Grove doing psychology degrees. You know, they read Freud, but basically they read him in a kind of history of psychoanalysis. They don't read him to apply today. Many of his psychoanalytic theories are debunked, but some of the fundamental points that he made have become common currency. And one of the the significances of Freud is, you know, he's operating towards the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Uh, there'd been a lot of discussion in psychological circles about childhood sexuality, particularly focused around, you know, issues of self-abuse. As, as uh, uh, Even the term self-abuse takes you to the heart of the way it was looked at, that somehow this is abnormal and harmful. And, and Freud was really the most vocal uh, and articulate of a group of scientists who essentially said, you know, human beings are always engaged in sexual activity of some kind. It takes different forms throughout life, but the infant is is as sexual in some ways as, as the adult is. Well, what that does is it makes sexuality one of the, or sex, one of the fundamental continuities from the cradle to the grave. It places sex right at the heart of what it means to be a human being, and it opens the way conceptually for this identification of the self with our sexual desire. Uh, so that's where Freud is significant. And of course, in the book, I also use Freud positively because I think he has some interesting things to say about how cultures and civilizations handle that kind of thing and, and why that makes the sexual revolution so important. Mm. Well, yeah, and I think the the point you just make about how Freud opened a door for the union of sexuality and identity in our minds today and our culture today is really important. And it, it connects in with maybe the idea of tolerance. I, I think there was a time when uh, the message that conservative Christians were hearing was, you know, we just want you to be tolerant. We just want there to be acceptance uh, yeah. and uh, room made for our own decisions and beliefs about all kinds of things, including sexuality. But now it seems like the cultural attitude has shifted. It, it now seems like what's demanded is personal acceptance and even celebration. And do you think that's a fair depiction of what's happened? And how does that connect in with this idea of identity? I think that's an absolutely fair description of what's happened. And I think it goes back to the category mistake that I pointed to earlier that I say Christians often make, that the issue with homosexuality is not an issue about behavior at a political or social cultural level that the idea of tolerance is you know, in 1960 if two men engaged in sexual activity together in Britain and were caught they could go to prison uh, they then they went to prison because of their behavior and tolerance would mean okay we we scrub that from the rule books we, we take that out of law so it's no longer an offense to do that you can engage in that behavior in the privacy of your own home you're not going to be arrested for it that's tolerance and it's really connected to social behavior the issue with the lgbtq movement today is not behavior it's identity and when you say, well, you can, you can do whatever you want in, in your bedroom, in the privacy of your own home, uh, but I still think it's wrong for you to do that. What you're actually saying is, I deny your identity, who you are, and you define yourself in terms of your sexual desire. Who you are is not who you really are. And that's akin in some ways to 
you know, an African American say, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna serve this African American person in my uh, cafe because they're African American." That's not a question about behavior. That's a question about identity. And I think a lot of Christians, maybe I think we're catching up on that now, but we're we're behind the the curve on that. We don't realize that actually the the political discussion has been about identity. It's not really been about behavior for a long, long time. It's why the, the LGBTQ movement is able to appropriate the language of traditional civil rights. And a lot of Christians say that's ridiculous. I don't think it is ridiculous from their perspective because for them it's identity. Mm. It's not behavior. Mm. So then get, get specific. What would it look like to uh, take this understanding of um, expressive individualism and identity and how that intersects with sexuality and actually let that inform how we as conservative, Bible-believing Christians engage on this issue? What might that look like? Well, I think, uh, there are, again, I'd, I want to make that distinction between what I would call the pastoral and the political, for, for want of better terms. I think when confronted in our churches with somebody who's, let's say, openly identifying as gay or, or transgender, now in any given individual circumstance, there are probably all kinds of uh, other issues going on there. So it's very difficult to generalize. But I think one of the things we need to bear in mind is there's a fundamental identity problem here. Then I think we have to ask ourselves, so, so how is identity formed? Well, identity is formed by strong community. You, you don't form an identity by saying to somebody, stop that, it's wrong. That might well be part of a pastoral approach, but it's not an adequate pastoral approach. I'm struck by Rosaria Butterfield's comments, the effect that when she left the LGBT community and joined the church, she expected to be joining another strong community and actually found it wasn't a very strong community at all. So one of the things that, that I want to see happening in the church is churches becoming much stronger as communities. We tend to focus, particularly in the conservative evangelical slash reform world, we tend to focus very much on doctrine. And don't take anything I'm saying here as, as doctrine of being less than primary importance. It's primary importance. But it's not the only thing that has primary importance. I think supportive community has to be there. For a gay person to give up that lifestyle and convert to Christianity is in many ways a bit like a Jewish person converting to Christianity or a, a Muslim converting to Christianity. They're not just changing the set of ideas they believe. They're losing friends, family, community over this. And they cannot be expected to do that unless the church provides them with equally strong things. Mm. Well, and, and to your point, they're also even, in some sense, giving up their identity. Yeah, yeah. And we need to make sure, and this applies to all of us, you know, I don't think that we want Christians identifying as straight Christians. I think we want everybody identifying as Christian as in Christ. That has to be the most foundational thing for us. Um, on the political side of things, I think one of the uh, one of the important things to do is we need to realize that perhaps the most pressing need of the hour in terms of Christians in in the social public sphere is is not so much. Uh, I've written on this at first things is is not so much prioritizing explaining the faith to the world at this point, but explaining the world to the faithful. We need to make sure that our people are properly catechized. The speed of social change is such that, you know, if 
on any given Sunday, if you do a Sunday school class on the latest crazy happening out there in the world, it's whack-a-mole, you know, because next week there's going to be something crazier. What we need is to train Christians to think holistically. Yeah. Focus on Genesis 1. You know, you don't teach a course so much on how to interact with transgender people. Teach people to really understand Genesis 1 to 3. So they have the basic theological skills that when they're confronted in the workplace or in the public sphere with serious questions and, and challenges of how do I vote on this? How do I think about this? They have that, they have the multi-tool already in their head that they're able to bring to bear upon the specific problem. So I would say uh, engaging in the political sphere, we need to stand for the faith, but we need to understand what the faith is first. Mm. Uh, and that, I think, involves a lot more than just teaching people to memorize Bible verses. Uh, one of the things I encounter at Grove, teaching undergraduates, is you know, the students, it's not enough to say, well, the Bible says it's wrong. Well, yes, but the Bible says a lot of things that we don't follow now, Dr. Truman. So why do we still hold to this? Well, I think that requires us to, to explain why the Bible says that is wrong. And that's a much more holistic and complicated task than simply shouting Bible verses. Well, and that seems to, that seems to run counter to the way that a lot of Christians uh, often engage these issues. Is we, we just sort of say, well, I believe the Bible is true. I believe it's God's revelation. Yeah. And God tells us how we're supposed to live our lives. And so we have to just either submit to that or not, but that's that's the issue. Are you going to submit to God's God's word? So why would you say that's a little bit off? Well, I would say, thankfully, that works for a lot of people. You know, when you, as, as you mature as a Christian in some ways, you, you become to have just more and more confidence in God says, God says. But we have to remember that, particularly with our young people, well, most of us, but certainly our young people, they're listening to maybe 25 minutes of a sermon on a Sunday, maybe twice a Sunday if they're really fanatical. That's less than an hour of Christian teaching in a week. Every time they check YouTube, go on Twitter, switch on the TV, if kids still do that. I mean, the TV's a bit passe, I know. But they're being preached at by people who say, this stuff is nonsense, it makes no sense. They're being preached at for the entire rest of the week. So it means that we need to really teach them well in the little uh, slot we've got. So praise God when somebody says, you know, God says that. I'm not sure why he says that, but I take him at his word. Praise God. But human beings, we're all generally more complicated than that. The old sinful self is always there whispering in our ears. Uh, it's good to have more tools in our toolbox, if I could put it that way. Mm. Uh, and when you think about it, Paul himself, Paul uses logic in his letters. He'll draw on pagan learning. Um, and certainly, if we want to have any impact in the public square, simply pointing people to the Bible in the public square is not going to have any effect. Pointing people to the tragic effects, long-term effects of transgender surgery and, you know, most disgusting of all, pre-puberty uh, hormonal treatment for kids Pointing people to the horrific effects of that may have an effect. Mm. So I think we need a broader arsenal than just pulling out the proof texts, particularly discipling our young people and then when engaging in the public sphere as well. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if you could put on your pastor's hat for a moment. What would you say to the Christian listening right now who 
may or may not have caught all of the different figures you mentioned, maybe some of the movements that you mentioned or philosophical ideas kind of went over their head a little bit. But if they're being honest, they feel a little bit scared about where our broader culture is heading. And they, and they wonder about the place that Orthodox Bible-believing Christians who want to be faithful to what God has said are going to occupy in the coming years. What would you say to that person? I think, yes, we live in interesting times. I think on one level, we should rejoice that most of us are not suffering what I would regard as real persecution. There are some people we know in America who've lost livelihoods over their stands on these issues because of their Christian principles. Some people are really suffering. Most of us are not. What most of us are experiencing is a marginalization within a culture that we thought we were at the center of. So I would first of all say, you know, let's not catastrophize things quite at this moment. Nobody's being carted off to internment camps uh, as they are in China, for example. So let's not catastrophize. Secondly, let us keep sight of the big picture. Augustine, uh, in his great book, The City of God, Augustine's writing that book in the context of the fall of the city of Rome, where in many ways in the ancient world, Rome was the United States of its day, except Rome had been around for a lot longer than the United States, and then it falls to the Goths in the 5th century. Does this mean that that God is not in control? Is it the result of us being Christians and not worshipping the old gods? All kind of questions bubble up, and Augustine writes this massive book. Frankly, he could have done with a really good editor. I think he could be doing with, <laughs> could do with being a third of the length. But it's, it's a great book, and, and, and the burden of that book is... Christians, we're meant to try to be good citizens of the earthly kingdom, but we must never confuse the earthly kingdom or the the earthly city, to use his terminology, with the heavenly city. And while as a a Westerner, it saddens me to think that my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren may not enjoy the great jewels and gems of the Western world as I've enjoyed them, may grow up in societies that are far more distinctively pagan and hostile to Christianity than I have thus far experienced. While that saddens me, it does not shake my confidence in God's promise uh, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. God's kingdom is not dependent upon, to put it rather facetiously, is not dependent upon Jesus taking over the White House, or us taking over the White House for Jesus. God's kingdom does not depend upon that. God's kingdom depends upon his character as expressed in his promise. Last time I looked, those things hadn't changed. So while there may be hard times to come for us as individuals, they are certainly uh, not as hard as, as the church has experienced elsewhere today and in the past. And they are certainly no sign that God is not in ultimate control. Maybe American society is coming under the judgment of God. Maybe. I I don't know. But I do know that in the midst of that judgment, he will not forget his people and he will bring them safely home. Mm. Well, Carl, thank you so much for, uh, yeah, helping us to see our cultural moment right now, maybe with a little bit bigger perspective and uh, that we might be more faithful as we move forward into the future. That was Carl Truman on our culture's obsession with identity and changing attitudes about gender and sexuality. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Available online or at your local Christian bookstore. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow, November 18th, for a special two-hour audio preview of Carl's book, 
available exclusively on the Crossway Podcast. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.